Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ciao, Paisani. Welcome back to the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola, and this week we have our second part of our two-part episode on the history, culture, and experience of the northern Italian culture here in the United States. But before we start, first and foremost, during these difficult times, we just want to say we're hoping everybody's doing well out there, staying safe and sound, staying healthy, and enjoying what we've been able to put out. Uh, Like we did last week, I just want to come on for just a second and ask you for just a little bit of patience with the sound quality of this week's episode. We've been working really hard through different vehicles online to try to get as many people as we can together for these shows in order to provide a little bit of distraction. But unfortunately, the recording that we did a few weeks ago, which led to these two episodes, had some hiccups. So hopefully we did the best we could to correct it, and you can still enjoy a wonderful experience learning about the often unknown culture of the Italian-American community that draws its roots from northern and central Italy. So we hope you enjoy We hope you're safe, and we look forward to being back together soon. So thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. See that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great From the moment you're a small bambino, you eat pizza, you drink vino. Then they make you roly-poly, you get stuffed with ravioli. If your mama's a paisano, you will have the world on a plate. So see that you're born in Italiano, and your life will be great. So welcome back, everybody, for part two of our discussion on the history and immigration and culture of northern and central Italy here in the United States. If you haven't already, please go back and listen to part one. came out last week. Uh, I'm John Viola, your moderator, back today again with Pat O'Boyle, Rosella Rago, our associate producer, Stephanie Longo, and our very special guest, Mr. Robert Allegrini, a dear friend of all of us and a champion of Italian culture in general, but a northerner himself, Robert is of Piemontese and Luque's extraction and gave an incredible contribution to our last episode and here again today for us to go forward with this amazing story. We've been hearing so much from our audience about how much they'd like to learn more about the northern and central immigration and culture in the United States. So guys, it was a great conversation in the first episode. We really covered a lot of the history, a little bit on where people were, some of the differences, some of the cuisine uh, between North and South. Today, I want to focus on a few of the standout stories that we hinted at earlier, and certainly a nice focus on where that culture exists today in these communities that I think first and foremost, we want to go visit. But secondly, want to highlight uh, are out there and have maintained such interesting cultures, as Robert points out, primarily west of the Appalachian Mountains. We talked a little bit about the history last time, and we sort of broadly covered the accomplishments and 
biographies of some eminent Northern Italians, we did hint at the Civil War and an, a little topic that I want to kind of cover because it, you couldn't talk North-South without talking about Garibaldi. Let's forget the politics. Garibaldi, he was a lifelong revolutionary, fled Italy, was in the Kingdom of Sardinia, and lived in the United States for a considerable amount of time. And he lived as a guest of Meucci, the real inventor of the telephone before Alexander Graham Bell here on Staten Island, New York, which if Staten Island didn't already have the bona fides of America's most Italian island, the fact that there is a museum where the inventor of the telephone and the, in many opinions, hero of the two worlds, I'll I'll hold my breath for that one, um, (laughs) lived at the same time. I think it's amazing. Robert, you talked about it a little bit in the first episode, but the Getty Baldy Guard, 39th New York Regiment in the Civil War, a lot of its officer corps made up of uh, Italians, primarily Northern Italians. Let's talk a little bit about Garibaldi's time here in the United States and relationship with Meucci. I mean, this is really pretty amazing history. Let me first start off by saying that the eminent uh, British historian, A.J.P. Taylor, um, who really was a specialist in, in, in 19th and 20th century European history, called Garibaldi the only wholly admirable figure in 19th century history. Wow. Um, so, uh, yeah, which is, is coming from an Englishman. Yes, uh, Taylor wasn't a, from Naples, was he? <laughs> quite a compliment. Were they both Freemasons? They were probably both Masons. In the Masonic world, Garibaldi is the same, 100 <laughs> That's true. Him and Ataturk, there's probably two separate altars with a little vote. <laughs> I, will, I want to do want to say one thing about Garibaldi because I, I have to put on my Southerner cap for a minute. I will say, after a year of unification, Garibaldi is quoted as saying, we've done more harm in a year to the way of life for these Southerners than was done in the entirety of their independent history. He did not foresee the sloppiness of unification in its early years. So I have to give him that. I mean, I think his intentions were always good. But here, as much in Britain, all over the world, he was a a celebrity before celebrity existed. I mean, his presence here was not insignificant. Yeah, if you look at the people that have praised Garibaldi, I mean, uh, everyone from Abraham Lincoln, who actually offered him uh, a position as a general in the Union Army in the Civil War, few people know that. And, and Garibaldi turned him down because Garibaldi listed two conditions. One is that uh, Lincoln come out publicly against slavery, which Lincoln was not ready to do yet because that was before the Emancipation Proclamation. And two, in a very Italian way, shows that there's not a lot of difference between the Northerners and the Southerners. Garibaldi wanted to be made commander-in-chief of the Union Army, but <laughs> wouldn't settle for anything less than being the top banana. Um, so Lincoln was not uh, willing to do that either. But but certainly his fame, he was the hero of two, two worlds because his, his fame was spread through North and South America as well as it did uh, Italy. And he was in New York, actually. He had come to New York because, of course, being from Nice, he was a, a sailor. And he was uh, in New York to pick up a boat initially. And then somehow the funding for this boat uh, fell through and he wound up staying some time with Meucci and forming a friendship with Meucci and other Italian immigrants to New York. And then uh, before long, I I don't think it was much longer than a a year or so, um, was on his way again to South America and then back across into Italy. It's interesting to me to think about how much his celebrity and frankly, eventually Meucci's, right? Meucci doesn't get credit as the true inventor of the phone until I think not that many years ago, 20, 30 years ago, they finally gave him the rightful credit for his invention. But I always find it really fascinating to see how much 
that little house, which has survived and is still a museum run by the uh, Sons of Italy, meant to immigrants coming over here in the latter part of the 1800s and into the early 1900s. It's really fascinating because the Italian community in New York actually built a shrine around that house, covered it in a marble sort of Parthenon-like structure. It was such a special place to them. I find it really interesting to see how, again, here in this country, Northerners and Southerners begin to collect around a united mythology and culture, probably even faster than they do in Italy. I just think that that's amazing. Yeah, and, and, and not a bad thing because uh, there was that sense of, uh, of being Italian uh, here in some cases before there was actually in Italy because, of course, you had the old regional rivalries um, not only between North and South but within the North and within the South and those uh, started to disappear in, in the United States. And in the U.S., you had a more common enemy in the Anglo-Saxon world, which I think forged the unity between the North and South to a greater extent. You know, we talked about San Francisco in the last episode, and I think that's an interesting community because it is primarily northern Italian, Piemontese, uh, Tuscan, Genovese, Ligurian, but a healthy and significant population of Sicilians, but one where you don't see those boundaries, really. You know, the San Francisco Italian community was, I think, very united and really thrived and flourished. We talked a little bit in the first episode about Giannini and if we're going to highlight Northern Italian accomplishment in this country, there might be nobody more significant than him. I don't know. I, to me, he I is, agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you. I mean, his, his contribution, uh, as I started to say in the, in the last episode, um, he literally bankrolled the rebuilding of, of San Francisco after the great earthquake in 1906. He set up a uh, makeshift bank uh, on the acts of uh, San Francisco and started loaning money to uh, Italian immigrants and immigrants of other ethnic groups as well to rebuild the city. And then, of course, shortly thereafter, his Bank of Italy grew into Bank of America. And he was literally one of the great financiers of, of the United States. You know, we, we talk about J.P. Morgan. Well, J.P. Morgan was the financer of the rich. A.P. Giannini was the financer of the everyman, the, of the immigrant, no less important. And a note which not too many people know, uh, which I know for an absolute fact, because this was told to me by the son of Frank Capra, uh, the, the great director, the character of George Bailey in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, is modeled after A.P. Giannini, and that was told to be directly by Frank Capra's son. So this is the influence Janini uh, had culturally in the history of our country. I don't think many people look at a global corporation like Bank of America and understand its eminently Italian roots to the point where, as you point out, it was called the Bank of Italy. I mean, you can't be more Italian than that. Yes. But when you look at the impact that the Northern Italians have had here, there are a lot of those brands and companies, and maybe it is out West, but you know, you talk about Giardelli, the famous chocolatier, a Northern Italian from San Francisco. You talk about, um, Planters. Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> not, uh, not from out west, but another northern Italian started uh, company. But Chef Boyardee. Yes, Chef Boyardee. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, don't knock it. It's what fed the uh, American army in World War II. So uh, yep. obviously not what any of us uh, want to consider as real Italian food. But uh, if he could come back to life and see and like, go, I just imagine him at like a shop right in the aisle and looking at the can, and then if he knew what had become 
of, you know, anel- canned Aneletti pasta, which was a Sicilian pasta shape. <laughs> and with tomato sauce. What, what, what do you think you, I don't know. He's Northern? Yes. Now I understand why it tastes like a taste. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get one in there. I'm sorry. It's been a lot Not of pro-Northern stuff I'll, on this show. I'll take it. <laughs> but the impact on American popular culture and consumer trends and these companies that are, you know, blue chip companies in the United States with roots in Northern Italy, I think it's wonderful. And I think it's something that we try to really share. And frankly, making the effort to actually highlight those roots with these companies. Like, I, you know, I wish Bank of America was doing more to celebrate its Italian roots. I wish Tropicana, uh, I mean, obviously they're all owned by corporations now, but you know, Tropicana founded by Italian Americans. Um, Del Monte. Del Monte, yeah, exactly. I mean, these are brands that are in the heart of American consumer mentality and nostalgia. And uh, I don't think they even celebrate their Italian roots, you know. Now, sadly, I've had to explain to several people that work for Bank of America their uh, the roots of uh, their own company, which uh, are not widely known, I don't think, even within their own workforce. I think that's part of our job. And Stephanie, you know, we talk a lot. Uh, Stephanie, obviously, people throw around the um, phrase, wrote the book on. But Stephanie literally wrote the book on Italian-American culture in Northeastern Pennsylvania, and we've been thrilled all these months to have her on the podcast team. But, you know, Stephanie, we talk a lot about planters and Scranton and your area of Northeastern Pennsylvania and the rich history there. But you were teaching me that actually the area of Northeastern Pennsylvania has a significant Northern population even today. Absolutely. Our population here, when I get reviews of my books, people say to me, I never realized how Northern Italian Northeastern Pennsylvania was. And if you look through some of the information that is out there on our population in Lackawanna and Luzerne counties, which would be the two major counties of northeastern Pennsylvania, there's a lot that can be said. Um, Luzerne County, of course, is the home of Planters Peanuts with Amadeo Obigi. He was northern Italian. He came and he founded Planters Peanuts right here with Mario Peruzzi, who was also from northern Italy. Hazleton, the city of Hazleton, actually their Italian population is even more northern Italian than the population of Wilkes-Barre, which would be Luzerne County's county seat. Um, There's a strong population of people from the Trentino Alta Adige region in Hazleton. And um, they consider themselves Tyrolese. When I was doing the research for Italians in Northeastern Pennsylvania, the people that I reached out to actually said, we don't consider ourselves Italian. We're Tyrolese. (laughs) So they did not want to participate in the book. Unfortunately, um, even Most Precious Blood Church in Hazleton was founded by a pastor who was from Piedmont. And Most Precious Blood in Hazleton is considered one of the oldest Italian Catholic churches in the United States. Well, we definitely consider ourselves Italian, those of us that are from <laughs> days. And I think yeah. those Tyrolese, they must have been from north of Bolzano somewhere. Yeah. Uh, because certainly the Italians from Trento consider themselves very, mm-hmm. very Italian. Of course, yeah. 600,000 Italian lives were shed to make them Italian mm-hmm. in the First World War. Yeah, there's a, a wonderful website out there by a woman who um, did some research into her Tyrolese family and talks about all the different ways they see it. And 
when I went through the website just the other day, there was nothing mentioned about Italy on there. It was just Bolzano. Like the towns were, of course, with Italian names, but they didn't actually mention the country of Italy in there. So it was pretty fascinating. And even just to your point um, in the last episode about famous Italian-Americans, the ones that really helped shape Scranton. Um, Scranton, of course, is known as the electric city. And there's a famous saying, if you can play Scranton, you can play anywhere. In fact, Frank Sinatra himself would actually debut his act in Scranton. And if he got booed in Scranton, he knew the act was not going to be successful. But all that is thanks to Sylvester Poli, who came from Bolognana near Lucca. Um, Sylvester Poli had 30 theaters across the East Coast in the United States. Um, he's my guy. So last year I was part of Leadership Lackawanna, and we helped do a historic exhibit in the Ritz Theater in downtown Scranton. And the Ritz in Scranton and a theater in Worcester, Massachusetts are the only two of his theaters still in existence today. But the Lowe's Theater Group is actually his group that they purchased. So, you know, he helped revolutionize with the talkies and with vaudeville in the United States. And he had a very strong presence here. And of course, I mean, I can't talk about Northeastern Pennsylvania without talking about Waldo Tadino for our friends in West Pittston. They are the sister city of the town of West Pittston, Pennsylvania. On the American Community Survey in 2015, five Northeastern Pennsylvania towns were part of the top 20 Italian towns in the United States. And West Pittston was one of those towns. They are sister cities with Gualdo Tedino. It's in Umbria. The immigrants from there came over to work in our coal mines. And you know that Frank Stella, the uh, the former uh, chairman of the National Italian American Foundation, his family was from Gualdo Tedino as well. Yes, he actually gave me some information for the Italians of Northeastern Pennsylvania book. And it, interesting to note along those lines that Gino Alucci was the uh, the, the president, or if it was the other way around, I don't Chairman. remember, uh, that he was the chair and, and Frank was the president. Gino Palucci's family, uh, also from central Italy, I believe from Le Marche, wound up in Duluth, Minnesota. So wherever you find mining areas, you will find northern Italians that were there at the outset of the activity. If you look at Michigan, for example, not a state naturally associated with Italians, but the upper peninsula of Michigan, as a ton of Italians, all of Northern extraction that, that originally went there for the mining industry. So nine out of the top 10 towns in terms of the percentage of Italians in Michigan are all in Upper Peninsula, Michigan, if you can believe that. But wherever you have mining, you have Northern Italians, to your point. You know, you mentioned Gino Paolucci, who doesn't get enough credit, first and foremost, in my life as the founding chairman of the National Italian American Foundation. And in true Italian fashion, he was the chairman for 20 years. So I, I, having served as the president for six, and Robert, as you've been a board member for a long time, you know that those are four-year terms. So he did five four-year terms. That's very Italian. Um, but also an incredibly successful businessman. Gino was very, very philanthropic. He started um, – Chung King Chicken, right, which was a frozen chicken, and the pizza company, Gino's Pizza. And as I study more and more Italian-American history, like he is the founding editor of Attenzione Magazine, which was the longest-lived. Yep, I remember Attenzione. I'm dating myself, but I remember when it was out, yeah. Yeah, I've been collecting those uh, back issues as best I can because in the 70s, you get the arrival of Identity Magazine and I Am Magazine and Attenzione. But, you know, he really was an incredible figure. The University of Minnesota, he was a significant donor there. I just want to throw one thing in. Yeah. Gino's book is fantastic. I love Gino Paolucci's book. It is everything 
It's like absolutely fantastic. Go out and get it if you can get it. Yeah, I wonder if it's still in print. I was at NIAF one time when it was gifted. And I absolutely love that book. It is Italian-American through and through. He was a fascinating figure. We may have to do an episode on him. Fascinating. He's well worth an episode. He was a fantastic personality. I wish that this podcast was around when he was still alive because he would have been a fantastic guest. Yeah, at the University of Minnesota, they have a center of Italian studies that was headed by a gentleman by the name of Rudolf Vecoli for a number of years. And I, I think that that must have been as a result of the efforts and the contributions of genealogy. I agree. I think Bob is probably right. That was probably the connection. And they have a significant archive of the history of the National Italian American Foundation there as well. I mean, most of the actual paperwork and documents, things like that, have ended up there. But I mean, you know, we don't necessarily think of Minnesota as having those kind of prominent names and companies and things like that. Um, When we were talking to Stephanie about Northeastern Pennsylvania, one of the things that was in the back of my mind that I think is a great segue into the conversation about the communities and traditions that are still thriving in the United States is their famous feast. And until we started doing the research for the show, I didn't even realize that it was the Northern community of Northeastern Pennsylvania behind the feast. I I assumed it was Southern. Stephanie, why don't you tell us a little bit about the feast that unfortunately this year we will not get to see. We were planning to go up, but uh, probably next year. Sure. So the Feast of St. Ubaldo, so La Corsa dei Cieri, is done in Gubbio, Umbria, as well as here in Jessup, Pennsylvania. So Jessup, again, if you take a look at the Italian communities of Lackawanna County and you compare them to a map of Lackawanna County's coal veins, to Robert's point before, they're all situated in a diagonal line right on the coal veins, and that coal vein stretches into Luzerne County. And the reason why they did that is because they had to be where they could go by foot to get to these mining facilities where they were going into the mines. With Jessup, the people came from Gubbio and they brought with them this beautiful tradition of La Corsa dei Cieri. And I have to tell you, it is something that everybody should see at least once in their lives because it's amazing. It's the Giglio of Pennsylvania. It really is. It's the Giglio of Pennsylvania. You know, this tradition dates back to the 1400s. So the legend has it that when St. Ubaldo, when he was the bishop of the town of Gubbio, he was negotiating with Frederick I Barbarossa and the people of Gubbio didn't know if he was safe or not. So they put St. Ubaldo on a platform and paraded him through the streets of Gubbio. And this was how they knew that St. Ubaldo was safe. And this developed into La Corsa dei Cieri. So what they have for La Corsa dei Cieri, and again, this is only done in Gubbio and Jessup, Pennsylvania. They have three saints. They have St. Anthony, St. George, and of course, St. Ubaldo. And they're placed on these beautiful wooden platforms. They are carried by 10 people. They're called the Ceraioli. And the head of the 10 people is called the Capo Dieci. And what this is, is it's, it's a test of agility and strength. And they have to make sure that the chero is kept perpendicular to the ground. And if that chero tips in any way, it is considered a disgrazia. Unfortunately, yeah. this is it's this has never happened. Um, Saint Ubaldo wins La Corsa dei Cieri every year, but it's really just a celebration of these three saints and what they have done to protect the town of Gubbio. And each saint has his own special role with the townspeople. Saint Ubaldo himself is the protector of the stonemasons of Gubbio. St. Anthony represents the peasants and laboring classes, and St. George represents the tradesmen and merchants. So all of Gubbio gets together to celebrate this. 
Interestingly enough, they actually stopped having it during the Korean War era because obviously Jessup's men were off fighting the Korean War. So what happened was around the 1976 U.S. bicentennial, which also happened to be Jessup's centennial, the people in Jessup wanted to do something that recalled their Italian roots. And there were people that remembered La Corsa dei Cieri from pre-Korean War era. And they thought, why don't we get this back? Why don't we do something with this? So they actually got a contingent of people from Jessup to go over to Gubbio, and they learned how to do this. Um, it is an exact carbon copy. If you speak to people from the St. Ubaldo Society, they will even tell you that they take great measures to make sure that this is exact. The attention to tradition and attention to detail is really second to none, especially with the festivals that I've seen here in Northeastern Pennsylvania. They even go so far as to do the traditional tossing of the broca from the top of the chero as it's getting put together. Um, after mass in Jessup, they have the capo dieci get up on top of the chero and they're given this traditional broca, which is a vase that they have. And they throw the vase off the top of the chero as they're doing it for good luck, just to make sure that they don't have a disgrazia during this event. It's really a sight to see. They do such a phenomenal job. Now they have a contingent from Gubbio that comes over to Jessup to watch and to participate. And the people from Jessup go over there. So this year with the cancellation of it, the people in Jessup would only cancel it if Gubbio did. And of course, Gubbio did and Jessup followed suit. The Corsa dei Cieri in Jessup will never take place before the one in Gubbio because they always recognize that this originated in Gubbio and this is the Eugubino di diaspora here in the United States and they want to make sure that they celebrate it as best as they can. Pat, do you think that this is the most unique northern feast tradition in the country, northern Italian? Without even a question, absolutely. It's funny, Bob might know this, I don't know the exact details, but the Luca community in Chicago had no procession or feast tradition because it's such a Southern thing. Well, I think they do in, in Luca, uh, certainly they have Santa Gemma, but I've never seen it here in Chicago. You're right about that. And yeah, and in the 50s, I had heard the story from someone in Chicago who was involved with the Italian feasts back in the day. In the 50s, they said all these Southern towns have all these big feasts. We need something. So they basically adopted a, like a May crowning Marian Mary feast for May because May is traditionally the month of, of uh, the Virgin Mary. And they kind of put together their own Lucchese feast and procession in Chicago just because they didn't want to be left out. Like, why should we be <laughs> outdone? I don't know if that still exists, but... I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. The only real manifestation of a Northern Italian... I'd say, yeah, Jessup is the only, the only Northern Italian feast I've ever heard of, period. But if I could just say one thing, from the historical aspect, the Southern Italian feast and procession tradition is very uniform because the South of Italy was a much more uniformed state than all the disparate different countries in the North of Italy. So if you take the kingdom of the two Sicilies, be it under the Spanish or under the Bourbons, really there was a lot of uniformity in the religious practice. That's why regions that are very different like Puglia, Abruzzo, Campania, Sicily, the fact that the town has a patron saint, the patron saint is celebrated on the next day, there is a procession, this is how the procession works. That is kind of indicative of the fact that the south of Italy was a United States for a thousand years, while the north of Italy wasn't. 
That's correct. And, and I think there's, there's much more anti-clericalism in the, in the North as well. I mean, they, you look at the leading figures of the uh, Risorgimento, whether it be Victor Emmanuel was excommunicated or Garibaldi or Mazzini, all have a strong anti-clerical streak. So I certainly think that that plays into uh, the North's feelings on that as well. Yeah, but I, I think that um, the anti-clericalism of the North, I think there was a lot of religiosity in the North. I think a big difference is Catholicism in the North. The North was look at the number one Italian, the number one Northern Italian in Italian American history is Francis Cabrini. Yes, Mother Cabrini came from from Lombardia. Correct. First American saint. A first American saint. A busted Charles Scalabrini. Another Northerner. Another Northerner. The Catholicism of the North was very active in the sense of let's build an orphanage. Uh, let's, it was more like uh, social work. The South was very much monasticism. It was much more kind of a spiritual, which is very Eastern. Southern Italian Catholicism is much more Eastern Oriental Christianity as opposed to Occidental Christianity. Well, you have the whole Southern Italian religion wrapped up in a sort of mysticism too, uh, with the with the cornicello, with protective amulets that you know have no, while they they have nothing to do with Catholicism, they're actually shunned by Catholicism. No, that's not true. That's I, not that's not true because the Maloyo, there are prayers against the evil eye in Orthodoxy. But I, uh, I don't see, and this is probably a very unpopular opinion, a clear line between wearing the malocchio for protection and then praying to Padre Pio. To me, it is all one and the same, praying to a higher power for protection, for safety, for well-being. I, you know, to me, it's, it's not a very black and white thing the way some, some people think. Some people believe that a, a horn and a saint should not be worn on the same chain. They should not be, you know, uh, touched. They shouldn't touch each other, things like that. I do not believe this. I personally live very much in the gray area of that conversation because I think it's all one and the same force that is keeping you safe. That's what I believe, not what is widely accepted and not exactly what the Catholic Church would say about it. Although I bet you that there are Southern Italian Catholic priests that wear a horn. Hold on, I got to go deep in on this. <laughs> there's, a fine, there's a fine line here. The most important moment I've ever had on the podcast, I think in a historical sense, is probably this second. So I'll tell you why. If you scratch the skin of a Southerner, underneath is a Greek. We're Greek. And, and that's why I say all the time, Every national goes, oh, we're just like Italian. No, you're not. There's only one nation I feel in the world that really is just like Italian. The closest we have are the Greeks. Una faccia, una razza, as they say. Right. And I think the real north-south divide is that we are, we're Western Greece. And our DNA is very much Greek. That's why you watch my big fat Greek wedding. You're like, wow, I know those people, right? Because they're us. Because remember, south of Italy was the America of the ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks got on boats, went to a, a land that had a few native populations, like the Italics and the, uh, the Calabrians, and they came and they colonized it, and they made it Mani Grecia, and Mani Grecia becomes the south of Italy. But if you look at the, the ritual, the Roman ritual was the book that priests used. Um, all the prescribed blessings outside of Mass were in this book. The Greek equivalent has a prayer against the evil eye. 
so orthodoxy in a pan sense and Greeks being a cultural sense have prayers against the evil eye. That concept stayed with us because remember, until the Normans came, the south of Italy was basically by ritual. Naples had a Latin cathedral, which you would call Catholic today, and an eastern cathedral, which I think was Santa Restituta, which would be the orthodox version of the cathedral. So the south, until the Norman French came in, who were very much western, which we would say Roman Catholic, as opposed to Byzantine Catholic, the Normans came in and kind of said, you're, you're Roman Catholic, you're connected with Rome. But spiritually, we're very Byzantine. So the overlay is Latin. The spirituality is Greek. And I think that the Greeks have a very strong monastic tradition. So I think a big part of the difference isn't that the North was so, there was anti-clericalism and very strong Freemasonic feeling in the North. That's true. But it's like, if you take the leading figure of the, the Catholic kind of poster child of Southern Catholicism, it's Padre Pio. Padre Pio is a Capuchin, but he's a mystic. And he's, he's living like almost a quasi-monastic uh, life. Um, Don Bosco, St. John Bosco, who founded in Turin um, the Salesian priest. The Salesians were all about being active, especially with young people. So I think that that's a big difference. Is Northern Catholicism has a different spiritual roots than Southern Catholicism. Northern Catholicism is much more closer to France. Does that make sense? Yeah. I would say France is closer to Northern Italy. Yeah, <laughs> let's remember where the center of Catholicism is. It's not France. You know, it, another thing that I think impacts these feasts or lack of Northern cultural traditions in, in these sort of mass gatherings in the United States is because the South was a unified monarchy, much of the day-to-day operation of government was ceded to the churches, right? Naples was a very busy capital with a healthy bureaucracy. But when you get out into the provinces, with the exception of a few cities uh, throughout the South, it's not particularly an urban nation, the Kingdom of Two Sicilies. So much of the administration of schools, hospitals, services is administered in agreement with the royal government by the churches. So the big day in your town is the patronal feast day. That's as much civic as it is religious. In the North, where you have primarily a more urban population or city-states with a very, very localized sense of identity and civic participation and tradition, you get a lot of secular feasts that don't necessarily translate and travel as easily for an immigrant population. You can bring your saint with you and have a procession. You can't have a Sienese paleo horse race when you live in the middle of you know, uh, Boston or Memphis. Right. I, I think that that is completely correct. And I think you add to that, that in most of the areas where Northern Italians were present, they were in a distinct minority. And you start carting around a statue of Madonna, your neighbors are going to look at you like you're crazy, which certainly was not the case uh, where there were more larger defined Italian-American communities in, in the Northeast. Can I add something in about La Corse dei Cieli, though? It's not considered an actual saint procession. And I think that's where, at least in this neck of the woods, people get a little bit confused because we do have processions in honor of um, Our Lady of Constantinople. We have processions in honor of St. Rocco. This one is really a race, the actual act of taking the hill in Jessup, and that's what it is called in the local vernacular, is them running up the hill with these cherry to make sure that they don't fall. You know, someone mentioned to me that it's along the lines of maybe, you know, Apalio and Siena in that it's a representation of Gubbio, but it's not an actual procession of saints. I mean, these people are actually running. They train to do this. 
Interesting. They spend a lot of time actually practicing. So it's not a traditional procession where you see them lifting the saint up on a platform and, you know, St. Rocco, then St. Joseph, St. Mary, um, the Blessed Mother, anything going on like that. You actually see them preparing this test of agility. But hold on a minute. And there's something else I want to add. Number one is Jessup is an Umbria and Umbria was part of the papal states. And that makes a difference because just the way the South was unified, it really was unified for a thousand years as the two Sicilies. The papal states were very different than, let's say, Piemont or Liguria. So I would put Umbria almost, it's kind of a transitionary, I don't like the word Central Italy, but in this case, it kind of works. That's the first thing. And the second thing is this, the North absolutely had processions. Anytime you go in the North of Italy, they will, they will have a procession with their patron saint, sure. The difference is in the South, it was a circus because that's what we are, right? So you have barefoot women in black screaming, crying. We're noisy. We're Greeks, right? It's louder. You know, it's, it's more elaborate. It's more over the top. The Southern Italians were much more bombastic as they are with everything. And that's what the Northern Italians are. So they do have a religious procession tradition. It's just much more tame. And what happened is the thing that we also don't bring in is that the idea of the Southern Italian, the feast that goes along. Because remember, for a lot of people in the south of Italy, they weren't religious. Bob brings up the fact that there was a lot of irreligiosity in the north. There was in the south too. So there were some people, they would go to a feast. They never walked in the church, but they would go to all the bancarelle, all the stands that were outside. The northern Italian priest was scandalized by the southern Italian religiosity. I mean, there were places in the U.S. where the outdoor feast was stopped. Because the northern Italian priest would go to the Irish bishop and say, I'm an Italian, and I am absolutely scandalized. we got to ratchet this down. That was a huge problem, too. Because, you know, especially like in New Jersey, New York, we had a lot of southern Italian priests who came here who took care of the Italian immigrants. They were kind of the surplus priests of the diocese in the south of Italy. In the Midwest, you had more missionary priests who were from orders who came from the north of Italy and they were much more, I'm going to teach you Southern Italians how to act. We're going to turn your Italian street feast into a fundraiser for the church, because that was kind of cool with that. We've been talking a lot about the Midwest, and I think it's about time for us to get to the final portion of our conversation, which I think is important, which is highlighting some of the communities out there today that we, as a show, hope to visit, and that you, as a listener, might not even realize are in your backyard. We mentioned in the prior episode, Tonti Town in Arkansas, founded by a Northern Italian American and still a healthy Italian population. I remember, and it's not existent today, but doing some work in Texas when I lived in Texas, and there was a land reclamation project on some empty property in the Northern Dallas suburbs. And we were incorporating a new municipality in order to bring services and uh, utilities and things like that. So we had to go all the way back as far as we could to see if there was any sort of pre-existing municipality there that needed to be recognized. And we actually discovered the land had been called Mantua, Texas, founded and settled by people from Mantova in Italy, and the colony just didn't last. But there it was, Mantua, Texas, in the middle of our exploration of the empty suburbs in the north of Dallas. And it really got me to think all those years ago, there are many of these communities that are still out there. And we always talk about the mosquito and the amber. They're in many ways also mosquitoes in the amber for our own Italian-American community. There's some interesting northern communities and traditions at the root of our story 
that I think a lot of people don't know about. You talk about Texas, the oldest winery in Texas was started by uh, Northern Italian immigrants and uh, it's still uh, in operation more than a century later. I think it's the third oldest continuous winery in the entire United States at this point in Texas of all places. And there were Northern Italians that were fighting uh, with the Sam Houston for the independence of Texas uh, in, in that war and that's been documented as well. So. They are in the most obscure of places that we would think is obscure from an Italian-American perspective. But when you talk about these towns that you want to visit, they are literally across the, uh, the country in, in states like Kansas and Nebraska, where you wouldn't think there were Italian populations. Basically, my research has shown outside of the Dakotas, they really have been almost everywhere else. I think North and South Dakota are two states with the lowest uh, Italian populations. But even South Dakota has a rich uh, Northern Italian uh, history in that the carver of Mount Rushmore that now has been acknowledged as, as the man who did the most work on Mount Rushmore was a Friulano stonecutter. Yeah, as a matter of fact, Luigi Del Bianco now recognizes the major artistic force and laboring artist behind Mount Rushmore was an interesting sort of parallel to the show because his grandson, I believe, Lou, became very close to Anthony at the founding of the show. And they did a lot of work together um, on getting that story out. And I think they, I think Lou wrote a book and um, set the root of some of the earlier work that was done at the IAP before three of us showed up. But it is amazing to think that in every state you go to, there is some fingerprint and footprint of our culture throughout the country. And, and I referenced the book, The Italian American Country, by Paolo Battaglia in the last episode. It's a great resource and one that I think is going to be a roadmap for us as we go out because it is interesting to tell these stories of the mainstream Italian-American culture. And obviously we're all located between New York and New Jersey, so traveling has to be arranged. But there's so much to see and do. And having traveled a lot of the country and gone to these communities, I can tell you from my own personal experience, there's nothing more fascinating than these undiscovered Italian enclaves throughout the nation. And we take for granted that they wouldn't have survived, but they have. John, do you know, do you know the, the town that has the highest percentage of Italian-Americans of any town in the country? Well, if we're talking about metropolitan area, it's New Haven. Not metropolitan. There you go. No, Definitely me. not metropolitan. <laughs> no, it's actually Shoop, Idaho. Shoop, Idaho has a population of 15, and they're all Italian. 100% Italian. I, I looked up uh, in, in preparation for the show, the, the cities, are, or not cities, the towns that have the highest percentage of Italian-American population. So it's Shoop, Idaho. Two of the top 10 are actually in Wyoming. And it just goes to show you that in these small hamlets in scattered states around the country, you have an Italian presence. John, we got to go. We got to go there. You think we can make? I would do it. No, we got to meet these 15 people. We must. <laughs> I would love to know the 100% Italian town. I mean, we always talk about having to create our own colony when the world really crumbles. It's there for us. 100% Italian town. I'm sure property's not expensive in Shoop, Idaho. <laughs> we should knock on all their doors. <laughs> it wouldn't take you long. Yeah, I know, but we have to go. We have to be like 100% of the population here is Italian American. I would love to know if they have like a store for us to visit. They I do. Know I, they actually, have... I actually intrigued as I was. There are a couple of videos on um, YouTube uh, that talk about Shoop, Idaho, and one which features the general store in Shoop, Idaho, which I hope sells pasta. We're going to have to do this. <laughs> See, my dream has always been, Pat's always talked about the compound, us having a settlement, which I think would be great. My brother came up with that theory. 
Well, that, that, that actually was the theory of Sbarbaro, the, the founder of Italian Swiss colony. He wanted to have a completely recreated Italian village, uh, self-contained village in Northern California uh, for the purposes of really educating the Italians, not for any kind of utopian vision, but how to survive in America, how the American finance works. He wanted to have this village of all Italian Americans so he essentially could be the teacher and to guide them and to enable them to exist better in the American life. What's more utopian for an Italian than the idea of having a town full of his own countrymen to boss around? To me, <laughs> that is the Italian utopia, I think. Wait a minute, I'm sorry. Shoop, Idaho's population is 41. Ooh, 41. <laughs> It must have grown since the last time I looked it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hope they're all Italians. Well, if they descended from the 15, they should. <laughs> <laughs> it's like rabbits. Uh, I've always dreamed, and everybody's heard this before, maybe not on the show, of retrofitting a double-decker bus into a traveling Italian-American museum and driving around the country to all of these communities and just either participating in their feasts or if it's a town of 40 people, just like Rose says, ringing their doorbells and sort of, you know, come on out and see the museum. But I think when this whole fiasco is over and we're free to travel again, we have to do some kind of road trip and just see these places now. Because I think being home, I'm so hungry to get out and all this stuff we talk about. I, I don't know. I think uh, I'm due for like a, maybe a month long road trip. Well, you'll have to go down to uh, Valdese, North Carolina as well, where the, uh, the Waldesians are from, uh, because they actually put on a festival that, from the pictures that I've seen, actually look like kind of a Mennonite festival. They're all in their traditional uh, garb from their days of being a Protestant minority in, in Northern Italy, and they have this festival in North Carolina uh, celebrating their culture. A Protestant Northern Italian feast. That has to be the yes. antithesis yes. of no, San Gennaro. No Madonna. And yeah, no Madonna. That, what could that possibly be like? What do they do? They have Zeppeli? <laughs> That's a valid question. They probably have like some kind of dry flour biscuit, like hardtack. Eat this. It's not fun. It's good for your soul. Like figs. Like fake figs. <laughs> That's not true, Ro. Do not go down the fig wall. You know what, Ro? I got to make my figs and send them to you. John, you've had them, right? Uh, I don't know if I've had your figs. I got to make them. They're not. It depends, Ro, on how long you, you leave them in the oven 15 minutes. They're fine. You leave them in there for three days. You could kill somebody if you throw them. I would, my, my aunts made those figs to withstand a pandemic, uh, <laughs> an atomic bomb. I mean, they'll, they'll survive. All the bacteria will die, but the figs will survive. Pat's got to have the strongest teeth of anybody I've ever met because he loves hard food. Yeah, he loves just... I love Tarone, the old hard Tarone <laughs> break with a hammer. That was like the greatest. My brother wanted to be a Tarone seller one Oh, dear. Did your brother make you chew on rocks when you were little? <laughs> no, my gra- I used to remember buying the Tarone in Hoboken during St. Anne's. You'd take it home and wrap it up in like saran wrap. And then you put it around the towel and you had to hit it with the hammer. But you know, John, to follow up on this, the one thing I noticed, you love the really old Italian restaurants, the Italian-American old restaurants. Yes. So many of them are Northern Italian. They're disproportionately high number that are Northern Italian. Very great point. And they serve Southern Italian food. Yeah, nowadays they do. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Robert and I, Robert, one of the last times you were in New York, I think me, you, and Pat. Oh, we went to the oldest Italian restaurant in New York, which is Piemonte's. Barbetta restaurant. Yeah, we had a great meal there. And it's beautiful on the inside. It's uh, 
Midtown New York around the theater district. Doesn't it go back to the 1890s, I think? 1906 it was founded. 1906, okay. And it's the oldest restaurant in New York. It's still owned by the founding family. And it is amazing. It's like part Italian history museum when you go in there. Yeah, it's got a beautiful outdoor courtyard uh, as well that we were in. But they do serve still Piemontese food in that restaurant. Still uh, serving Annalotti and Tagliarini and uh, other. You're great. Northern Italians are outstanding at stuffed, small stuffed pasta. Yes. That's where you're. Yeah, Annalotti is certainly, certainly um, very Piemontese. You know, Italian cuisine in this country has gone through so many iterations, right? Like I always say, I'm a red sauce, checkered tablecloth, Southern Italian soul food, stuff that immigrant families have been making since the 1890s to the 1920s. I love that kind of stuff. Thick red sauce and parmigiana, everything. And then in the 80s and 90s, you know, you get the arrival of sort of modern Italian cuisine and higher numbers and things. But the precursor to all of it is the older northern Italian restaurants. And they're really, really rare to find. But what a treasure when you get to them. Because, like you know, as, as Barbetta is a perfect example, it's a whole nother iteration of what people think of when they think of Italian cuisine in America. And um, Ro and I talk about this a lot. We're both big advocates for the idea that Italian American cuisine, be it northern or southern, deserves its own designation because it's so different than what has evolved into modern Italian cuisine. And it's a treasure trove for us. Yes. Yeah, you know, and obviously when the Italian immigrants came to this country, they found different ingredients that they didn't have in Italy. And there were certain ingredients that they had in Italy that they didn't have in the U.S. So, you know, in Chicago is a prime example where I'm from. There are a number of dishes that were created by uh, Italian immigrants. You know, there was certainly no Italian beef sandwiches in Italy. Um, and, you know, things like chicken Vesuvio, which is uh, ascribed to the Italians in Chicago. And, uh, the deep dish pizza, which personally I'm not a fan of because I, I believe in the, the true Neapolitan style pizza. But again, to your point, yes, there is an inherently Italian-American cuisine. There's no doubt about it. We're, since we have a Chicagoan on the show right now, I got to ask, you know me, I'm easy on anything Italian. I, I, you know, as I always say, I would vote for an Italian greyhound if it ran for office because it was Italian. So I, I, I go pretty easy. Where the hell did deep dish pizza come from? That's the one thing I cannot. Oh, that's easy. That's the easiest thing in the world. The idea of pizza, the thin pizza we have now, that's a Neapolitan street food because Naples is the land of street food. And the rest of the south of Italy, be it the uh, focaccia in Bari or the sfinchone in Sicily, what happened was bread making was an all-day affair. So you made bread from somewhere between once a week, once every nine days, once every two weeks, because the bread made with the sourdough would last that long. It would get a little dry and tough at time, but it would last. So you made multiple loaves and you went through it. Um, because bread making sucked up your whole day, what you did was at the end of the bread making, when you had the last amount that was left in the, the madia, which was like a big trough, you would take the bread dough and you would put it in the cast iron pans that your blacksmith had made you remember you didn't go out and buy pans you had it made by your blacksmith so you have a few of those pans you would put some oil on top with anchovies oil on top with salt if you had tomato sauce you put a little bit of that on top some grated cheese whatever you had if you're in Puglia, you stick on the the tomatoes or the olives stick that in the oven and that's your meal for the bread making day but what about this idea of stuffing it with you know it, but, so okay, many... well, hold on hold on hold on a minute that's a different, because you have to remember something. The bread bakeries are the first pizzerias. And now remember something, the big benefit of America is I don't have to make bread 
once every nine days. That was very hard. Breaking up sourdough starter by hand with water to break up all the little um, igrumi in Italian. Like, well, bro, how would you say igrumi? Like, um, yeah, if to break that up, that was a lot of work. So now you go to the bakery and they make the bread for you. It becomes a convenience food. But you miss the sfinchone, focaccia, what would be called Sicilian style pizza today. The bread dough baked in the oven with a topping. You miss that. And so you buy some. So you go get a loaf of bread and you get a few slices of this. Now, if someone comes along and decides he's going to stick in, you know, somebody decided one day a pineapple was a pineapple and, and baked ham on a pizza made of white <laughs> pizza. The same guy comes along and says, I'm going to take a, the old-fashioned sfinchone that my grandma used to make on, on bread making day, and I'm going to stick pineapples inside. That's welcome to America. I'm in agreement with you, Pat. I think the... Uh... The Chicago deep dish is uh, an Italian-American evolution of Spinchona. Exactly. 100%. Definitely not a northern one either. <laughs> <laughs> sure, you want credit for everything else, but not, not that. No, not that. No. I would bet you that the same way I have a theory that there's a universal European post-medieval farm culture, I bet you somewhere in the north of Italy when they made bread, they probably had their own thing. There's, I'm sure if you go back to those old villages, and maybe it didn't make it all the way over to America, but I'm sure they had their own tradition. Oh, I'm sure. And, and speaking about making your way over to America, I just want to bring up one other subject that we haven't touched on yet, and that is the mass immigration from 1880 to 1920 of Italians, which many of my Southern friends think was an inherently Southern phenomenon brought about by the unification of Italy and the maltreatment of the, uh, of the North uh, to the South. But if you look at the, the actual numbers of immigrants from Italy during that period, between 1880 and 1920, when 4 million immigrated from Italy to the United States, another 4 million immigrated to South America. And those immigrants were primarily from the North. You see, two out of every three immigrants that left Italy during that period that went to South America were from the North. And essentially four out of every five that left Italy during that period and wound up in the United States were from the South. And so there's that dichotomy. But when you look at the raw numbers, the two regions that had the highest number of emigration during that period are the Veneto and Piemonte, followed then by Campania, followed then by Friuli, followed then by Sicily, and followed then by Lombardy. But to say that it was an inherently Southern Italian phenomenon, things, things were not rosy throughout Italy during that period. And that is why a lot of uh, Italians left from Northern Italy as well. It is just that the Northern Italians went primarily to South America because they were going into farming communities. They had a little bit more. They were not as destitute in most cases as the Southern Italian uh, immigrants were. And so they went and they purchased land in South America in areas that had already been colonized by Italians as early as the early 1800s. Don't forget that Argentina already had a president of Italian descent, a second generation president in 1890, already an Italian president of, uh, of Argentina. So they found a very welcoming population there where they were able to assimilate very quickly. The Southern Italians were lured into the United States essentially by the fact that they could get manufacturing jobs 
which they didn't have to have any pre-existing capital to obtain and those manufacturing jobs were able to pay wages that they could not get elsewhere. So that attests to the disbursement of Italian immigrants between North Well, actually, I, I had, you know, the, the lone Tuscan nonna in, in one of my books, uh, her name is Rena. So when she was telling me her story, uh, it struck me a little bit that she she was like, we arrived in, in New York, um, and this must have been in the late 40s. And she said that they, they lived in a tenement building in, uh, in around Little Italy, and uh, no longer there. Like the entire street that that building was on just doesn't exist anymore. And um, she said that she was really shocked that people like the other Southern immigrants that lived in the same tenement, you know, that shared the same bathroom with her, kind of had this idea about her that she was from Altitalia. <laughs> and she was like, we're all in the same place over here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what, what you're talking about. So uh, I think she was so alien to the fact, she's like, I came here because I don't want to like, you know, kill a chicken once a year anymore. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Not very many immigrants came because they were rich. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah, you know, we were all poor. So That's I, right. I, I didn't see a difference between us. That's right. And I would agree with that. I mean, yeah, there was a, people don't realize how poor Venice, I mean, you know, a lot of the gas, the fuel in Lake is how prosperous the North is and how poor the South is. That's very much a modern phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, people were eating polenta because they were really, really poor. Oh, absolutely. It was the pasta shooter of the North of Italy. And I think that the boom of the 1950s turned the poor region of Veneto into an economic powerhouse. But that's very much a recent phenomenon. You're absolutely correct. You know, if you look at where... Italians in Mussolini's time, you know, the, the colonies that were sent in the great uh, migration that Italo Balbo led the famous expedition of 20,000 uh, immigrants into Libya, the vast majority of them were from the Veneto region, still poor as late as the late 1930s. Well, it's interesting to think back on the reflection of an immigrant, as Roe mentions, about no matter what, there are certainly those who come because they have resources and opportunity, but the majority of people, even today from, from all over the world, come to this place because it's the land of opportunity. And whether or not it always pans out to be, the great thing about this country is it is the place that intends to be the land of opportunity. And I think that that's been at the root of the amazing success for Italians from North, South, Central, the islands, anywhere that you find us we have been able to succeed in this country in incredible ways. And it's my hope that after these two episodes, those of us who are the regular participants on these wonderful conversations may have a little bit softer spot in our heart for those from the regions north of Rome and the Papal States. It's been a real pleasure having our dear friend here with us. I think, Robert, you can come back anytime on any topic as the representative of the wonderful Northern peoples. Uh, you, you do a great job, and uh, I always like getting to spend time with you. So it's been a slice. Thank you for being here, and uh, hopefully you'll come back. Well, the feeling is mutual. I have learned a lot myself. Now I can claim Frank Sinatra as well as a Northerner. <laughs> oh, dear, the list needs to get longer. 
half, half. That's why he was all blue eyes, obviously. <laughs> well, don't tell my Sicilian grandfather that blue eyes to him are a Sicilian staple. Well, bro, Pat, you guys feel like going to Northern Italy anytime soon after this? I would go to, I would go to the gate to have with Bob Algrini. I love Bob Algrini. He's a phenomenal. I am honored to be on a podcast with him, and I am honored to call him a friend. Likewise, so, my friend. The greatest episodes we've done. And I hope I've made uh, a couple of new friends as well. Rosella, there's lots of Ragos in Chicago. I don't know if you know that back, but my uh, dear friend Lou Rago actually uh, heads, and that's the way he pronounces it, um, as opposed to Rago, but, uh, but Lou uh, heads the Italian American Human Relations Foundation in Chicago, and I'm sure he would welcome having you in the city. There are, I've been to Chicago and the outskirts of Chicago. I have met some Ragos uh, that own... Uh, uh, Panino's Pizza and another pizzeria. They are from Oladibari. We are not related. There may be Ragos that are related to me, but we uh, fought with the Rago side 30 years ago. So I don't know. <laughs> not really allowed to know. So, so a very yeah. distinguished name in Chicago. Yes. Uh, I'm, def- I'm so ready to go to Shoop, Idaho. You have no idea. <laughs> general store looks fantastic. And Stephanie, thank you for teaching me so much about the, the Northern Italian or the Central Italian uh, culture of, uh, of Pennsylvania as well, which I was unaware of. So thank you. Well, now you have to come and visit us. That's your next trip. Everybody's welcome. And when all this is over, God willing, yes. you all will get to take a trip to Jessup and check things out at the museum. Well, it sounds like when this is over, we got a lot of work on the road. So Pat and Roe, I hope you guys are geared up for a road trip. I would love to go. Ro, you got to find out what we're going to eat when we get there. Well, I think the best meals will probably be at someone's home. So maybe one of the 40 people will agree to, to have food for dinner. I don't know. I should send out like a, night, uh, a mass, you know, a mass Facebook message. Are you a resident of Shoop, Idaho and an Italian-American? You want to have some kids over for dinner, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're happy to go anywhere. Well, this has been a lot of fun, and uh, I know we are all stir-crazy in the house. I know you're all stir-crazy in the house, and uh, we're all looking forward to the chance to get back on the road and see this great community, Italian-America, that we love so much. So from all of us the Italian-American podcast, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Stay positive, test negative. Amen. That's awesome. See that you're born in Italian.